Now, I'm sure tonight we're not going to have a bumpy ride like the launch of the Aston Martin company at the Stock Exchange yesterday. Well, that went down well, didn't it? <laughs> uh, so we're going to have a very smooth ride tonight. So will you please welcome Stephen Archer. Thank you. Thank you very much. So whilst, whilst Tim's trying to play with my laptop, which is going to be entertaining in itself, um, let me just briefly introduce myself. Um, so it's great to be here because writing this book, Getting to the Ulster book, um, is kind of, um, it's, I don't want to say an end point, it's not an end point because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not done yet. But my father came here before the war and uh, saw many motor races at Brooklands and um, fell in love with cars and he bought his first Aston in 1953. Actually he bought it when my brother was being born but in those days of course this stuff about fathers being there at the birth wasn't allowed so the nurses said you can hop it so he went and bought an Aston which is the right, which is the right, which is the right thing to do. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, and that was a 1933, a one and a half litre saloon. And of course, those times were very different. Um, it was his daily car, I think it cost 100 pounds. It lasted about three years before the ash frame finally gave in. Um, he criminally, we would now view it now, broke it up, as you do then. Bought another one, which also fell apart eventually. And then he bought a 1935 long chassis drop head coupe. Um, and when I was born, a little later on in the 50s, that was the car that I was driven home in as a baby. So my association with these cars, I had no choice, did I? I mean, they say, say, why are you interested in Astons? I said, well, you just tell that story and people get it. It's just no escape. And after that, my father bought more and more Astons, and he actually became very active in the Aston Modern Owners Club in 1953. Um, and he was very encouraging to new members. And in fact, there's one here this evening who <laughs> remembers my father's encouragement at that time. And, uh, and he connected me and the whole family was involved in, in Astons all our lives, and I, and I still am. Um, I have to say that I've had myself um, many Astons over the years, but never owned a pre-war Aston. I have driven an enormous number and raced an enormous number as well, including a lot of the Ulsters, but never actually owned one. Uh, but I have sort of vowed that before I do get too old to drive something, that I will have a pre-war Aston as my last Aston. That's how I feel about them. And I've driven actually pretty much all the Astons, because I write about them so much. I've driven virtually all of them, and I mean all of them, uh, and right up to date, right up to the latest advantage, which, um, yeah, it's, it's fast, but it's not an Ulster. <laughs> no, no. So there we go. So it's just a little bit, bit potted, little potted, um, potted background for me, in case anyone's saying, who is this guy, guy, why is he talking about Astons? And, and the point is, I just can't help it. So that's it. So that's what you booked tonight, and it's going to be Aston's. So um, about the uh, no, beginning of last year, um, I was contacted by uh, Philip Porter of Porter Press, and he said that the owner of the Ulster then, um, Adam Lindemann, wanted a book on his car, and would you like to do the book? So I said, lovely, because my association with that car goes back to 1962. I remember it then. It's true. That far back. So it, for me, it was, a, it was a wonderful way to go, go back down memory lane and, and join up lots and lots of dots. So it was a great, uh, a great honour to do it. Can I just ask, how many people have um, been to a talk on Aston Martins in the last 10 years? Yeah. Okay. How about the last 80 years? That's torture, isn't it? So, okay, so I'm not just going to talk about this car tonight. I thought that would be... Um, well, it doesn't really tell the story if I do that anyway. So I'm just going to give you I'm give a bit of a scamper, if I can put it that way. Does this work? Here we go. A race, even, through history, before we get onto the story of, of this particular Ulster. So for those of you who heard the story before, um, I'm sorry, but who said that? Actually, there is a different slant that I have from the story of Aston Martin until... Uh, 1935 anyway, and it's entirely opposite because, as you may remember, to Steve's point, 
when it was announced that Aston Martin would be floated, I think they said the company had gone bust seven times or something like that in its history. Just one more time than Donald Trump. That's also true, by the way. And the reality is, as, as a, and I knew the story anyway, but in fact, it had to be, uh, it went bust or was rescued that number of times before the war. So it's actually a company that's broken a lot of hearts, bank accounts, and, and, and dreams, as I suppose a lot of cars did before the war. That's why so few of those uh, car companies are still around. But it's certainly no exception with Aston Martin. But it's interesting that Aston Martin as a name, as a company, now they call it a brand, has survived beyond so many others. And that itself is a subject uh, that's worth delving into. And perhaps at the end of this evening, you'll appreciate why it is. So anyway, a quick, as I say, a quick run through history. Um, a few years back, 1913, there was a lot of noise about 100 years of Aston Martin. Uh, I'm actually going to have a, con a bit of a, uh, an argument with that, that point. Yes, the company was formed in early 1913 in Henneker, places it was then, now Henneker Muse. And you just see, if this thing works here, I press the wrong button. Yep, there we go. Bamford and Martin, there it was. Um, so it's formed then, but of course the, uh, the clouds of war were not that far away. And uh, Bamford, Bamford and Martin, Bamford being an engineer um, and, uh, and from a wealthy family, Martin from the China Clay family in Cornwall, formed the company with the intention of building highly engineered sports racing cars. The bit about making money seemed to sort of be secondary somehow. Didn't, didn't help their cause, shall we say. Um, so, but eventually they, they did turn a hand to actually doing something with the company. But it wasn't until 1915 that the first, first car appeared with um, the name Aston Martin, although actually that was in fact a Isotto Fraschini with a Coventry Simplex engine. Um, so not really an Aston, you can see it's it called, nicknamed Coal Scuttle, anyone who remembers a Coal Scuttle in their family hearth will see why it's called Coal Scuttle, not quite the DB5, but um, having said that, not really a true Aston either, and that car um, certainly doesn't exist um, now. So therefore, 1915, or 2015 I should say, was justifiably one of the anniversaries that one might have had for 100 years uh, of Aston Martin, because that's the first time it, that a car appeared with that name. However, it was actually 1919 that the first car they made completely uh, as Aston Martin appeared. Um, it was nicknamed Bunny, it's Lionel Martin by the car there, and just see to the right, uh, Kate Martin. This was known as the, the second prototype. This is at Brooklands, as I'm sure you can recognize there. The car did a great deal here. It was also raced by Eddie Hall, who I'm sure many of you know the name, Eddie Hall, we will come back to that interesting character in, in a minute. So there we go, it's the third anniversary, we can say the 100 years of Aston Martin. Oddly enough, the Aston Martin Owners Club, Ian, you might know the answer to this one, had an anniversary in 1970 for the 50th anniversary of Aston Martin. That means 1920. Never figured that one out, but maybe just an excuse for a party. So, uh, but by 1921, it's the first time it actually packed up. Uh, or ran out of money, I should say. It didn't actually go out of business, it just ran out of money. But even by that time, Louis Lebrowski, Zabrowski, and many other people were actually buying the cars and racing them with some success. This is actually an Aston, again, at Brooklyn's, the 200 mile race. He was very successful with the car. And when Martin said, well, we're running out of money, you can't help me anymore, he said, well, fine. He helped out. So Zabrowski was the first person to step in, and he then, with Clive Gallup, went on to fund uh, and build a 16-valve engine which went into uh, the Grand Prix cars you see here at Strasbourg in 1922, which were very successful cars, but not there. The Magnetos failed. So, um, and in fact, the one on the left, I think, is Green P, and that's the only Grand Prix car I've ever driven. But it's a Grand Prix car. And in those days, of course, the Grand Prix was a proper Grand Prix, and none of this 90 minutes and uh, get the champagne. It was hundreds of miles and hours of, of uh, endurance and so on, and, uh, and on ridiculously skinny tyres. So, then the company, um, thanks to the investment from Zabrowski, was able to move from Kensington, just up the road to uh, North Kensington, to Abingdon Road, and again, you can just see there, 
Bamford and Martin Engineering, written up there. Um, so this was a propitious move for them. And then a chap called Lord Charmwood, actually John Benson, came along. Um, that's not a miniature Aston, by the way. He's really tall. <laughs> he was six foot four, although it does look that Aston was sitting even then quite low. However, he really was a, a huge chap. So John Benson actually just dropped in down in the road, and he was from a very wealthy family. He said, look, I'd, I'd quite like to work on cars. He didn't want to study classics. He said, can I, can I help you out, sort of thing. And uh, I think Martin recognised the, how should I say, the cut of his suit, and thought, pretty good idea to have this chap on board. So two pounds a week, they hired John Benson, which <laughs> turned out to be a very good idea, because immediately they said, oh, by the way, we're also getting out of business. Any help available? And of course, he went to his mother and said, yep, that's fine, we'll just put some money into that. And that's how they carried on. So Charmwood has a, a really, really, and Benson, of course, Benson, there's an engine named after him later as well, but Benson's an important saviour. The second rescue. We're not done yet with failures of Aston Martin, and don't get me started on after the war. So by 1925, so in the first 15 years, they'd only built 60, sorry, so 10 years, 60 cars. 60 cars in 10 years. You can see why there was not much of a commercial undertaking uh, going on here. Uh, but they did advertise, as you see here, the, the road race, such as the Grand Prix car, the 16-valve engine in it. So they're full of confidence because, well, they, they got money in and they put an advert out and then more people came along and, and supported them. So uh, sadly, though, that was a complete failure. This time it wasn't a rescue, but 19, by 1925 it was truly out of business. Um, it all went horribly wrong, actually, because Bamford and Martin actually fell out over it. Um, there was trouble with Benson, uh, Lord Charmwood as well. And in fact, famously, um, anyone hear a lawyer? It's not because I'm going to say something inappropriate, by the way. Or <laughs> well, I might, but I'm not yet. Any lawyers here? Yeah. Don't be afraid. It's, not, it's okay. It's not, you know, there's worse professions. So uh, famously, though, you look this one up. It's a true story. Um, even today, in case law is cited the example of Lionel Martin suing Lord, Benson, uh, Lord Charmwood, John Benson, uh, for slander. Um, just as a result of their, their falling out and, and the dissolution of the company. It's all very sad. Um, but it got to the High Court, and in the end, uh, they awarded, uh, well, they found in favour of Martin, but they awarded him a penny. And said, you're right, but really, you shouldn't bring this sort of thing to court. And that was the lesson. So slander is a very difficult um, uh, area of law anyway, but uh, there we go. So Lionel Martin and Benson, famous for the wrong reasons there, one might say. So, but Martin had to leave the company. Um, Kate Martin actually did um, carry on with some involvement for a while. Um, wasn't helped by the fact that um, Bamford and Martin's wife got mm, quite friendly, shall we say. It just got really complicated. And it's bad enough trying to make money with the cars without stuff going on at board level. If you run a company, you know that you just don't want trouble at the board level. They had everything going wrong with the board. It was company, money, customers, women. The whole lot. It never, never works. Stick to the cars and, um, and make, make, try, and make, try and make money. So, um, anyway, so uh, Benson knew of uh, a small company being set up in 1924. Uh, called Rennick and Bertelli, and uh, Bill Rennick was an engineer. Uh, Bertelli was uh, actually born in Genoa, but um, had moved to Cardiff with his family and uh, worked in the steel works there and, and developed quite a, a significant engineering career. In fact, he went back to Turin to work for Fiat on the Nazaro's Fiat, Fiat racing car as well. So um, he was very, very accomplished and, and an ambitious chap. And, uh, as it turned out, Bertelli was um, you know, really, really one of the great makers of Aston Martin, um, along with Rennick, but Bertelli was, was the real driving force. He was the David Brown of before the war, if I can put it that way, and he certainly forged the spirit of it, and without Bertelli, there wouldn't have been a float this week. That's for sure. It would not have survived, I'm, I'm quite certain. So they, um, they already had in their ideas the sorts of car that they build. Um, obviously, they'd already been playing with one and a half litre racing cars and a few road cars. But um, here on the left, we have an Infield all day of 1921, one and a half litre. So they're sort of brought up in the light car uh, mentality, if you like. But in 1924, they actually made their own car called the Renegade Bertelli, still exists, called the Buzzbox. 
uh, perhaps for obvious reasons. Um, but it interestingly had in it, sorry, in this picture, um, that engine, which was conceived by uh, Bertelli with Rennick, it is almost identical to the engine that you see in all the subsequent one and a half litre Aston Martins. So they knew they had a good engine, all they then had to do was create a good chassis. It's a little bit like David Brown buying Lagonda for the engine to put in, uh, put in, uh, in the chassis that already existed. So in 1926, um, the Charmwood family uh, continued their support. Um, Rennick also put money into the company, um, and they also filed a patent for the design of the head. Uh, not sophisticated by today's standards, but they nonetheless filed a patent for it, which is not a bad thing. And Claude Hill, uh, one of the unsung heroes of, of the design design office, if you like, Aston Martin, uh, also joined in that year, and, and he would stay until... Um, uh, until the end of the war, in fact. So things were looking up, shall we say. And in fact, the company that was incorporated in 1926 carried on until 1948. That didn't mean it didn't run out of money. It did. We'll come on to that. But the same company at least existed. So in 1926, they moved uh, to Feltham, rather grander, grander uh, uh, premises than they had in, in London. Um, and I point out here, this picture, you might be able to read it. Um, but it actually says there in 1934, so obviously the, the works are there, if you can see that with my little pointer. Uh, what you can't read there is it says, flying bomb landed here in 1944, there. I digress for a second, or sort of digress in, into, the, into the next part of the story. There were, um, there should be 28 Alsters in existence. Um, one has been missing since 1939. We think that it was actually in the factory when that flying bomb hit it. That's all we can surmise. It's, it seems unlikely that a car like that would never have surfaced since 1939 in any other form. And no one's actually admitted to uh, breaking it up. Uh, no parts have appeared either. So um, that's why that flying bomb actually is, is not irrelevant. That Dad's Army thing seems appropriate now, doesn't it? So, uh, 1927, they start to make a car, and now we're looking at the cars that are actually the ancestors of the Ulster. So this chassis here uh, essentially formed the basis of all one and a half litre Aston Martins until 1936. Um, but this is the first series, became known as the International, had a separate gearbox that they made, um, and the first, uh, the first Aston I ever drove was a, te a team car. Uh, with that sort of gearbox, and it's one of those where if you learn how to do double clutching and a synchro mesh gearbox, a non-synchro gearbox, that's the one to practice on. You had a rev band about that narrow to get it right. Otherwise, you park the car, start again. It was an absolute nightmare. That's just a bad gearbox in that car, to be fair. It was a difficult gearbox in those cars, but the car was very well received, very successful, very effective car, um, and it actually went on to be uh, a reasonably successful model. I'll put it, enough, put it this way, they didn't need funding in 1927. It kept them going, at least for a while. So it had some, uh, some success. Now, that said, 1929, a couple of years on, uh, another rescue, the fourth comes along, Sidney Whitehouse. Um, he was asked to, uh, again, put some money into the company to help out, which he did uh, on the interim basis. But luckily, and I think it's really important that Bertelli realised the importance of, you know, race on Sunday, sell on Monday. And he was absolutely adamant that they were going to produce racing cars first and all the other cars were derived from the racing cars. So this is actually derived from, as it turns out, derived from the international, based on the international model. It's LM1, the first of the team cars. The, the team cars range from 1 to 21, the last one being in 35, obviously in Ulster. Uh, in 1928, because their first appearance at Le Mans was in 1928 with LM1 and LM2. Uh, more rescue. This is a slightly different one here. Um, they were struggling with cash flow, so uh, Audington of you know, Fraser Nash fame and so on um, provided a bank guarantee. So in other words, they were actually able to trade thanks to the bank guarantee that Audington provided. Didn't put money in, but he put a guarantee in. He, probably did dip into reserves at some point or another. So that's 1930. Things do have a start to eventually look up, but, now, but not before we get the sixth rescue from Lance Prideau-Broom. Back to Cornwall, he's another Cornishman of uh, French descent. The family seat is still down there and there are still Prideau-Bruins in Cornwall. 
Actually, no, I think they're in Dorset. Sorry, but they were from Cornwall. Um, and this is actually his car. That's a long chassis uh, 1935 drophead coupe. They only made eight. My father had two. He broke up one of them. <laughs> actually, a minor digression. He sold the other one to the um, United States in 1963, where it disappeared. Two years ago, I found it in California. So that's quite a happy, happy, happy end to that uh, story anyway. And the car's sort of alive and kicking with an MGB engine in it, but it's uh, better than having been cut up. Well, he has got the real engine with it still, so it's a, there's something. Um, and a lot of dog hairs in it. Very eccentric chap. I think if he could, he would have put a gun rack in it. Anyway, um, so, but I think, I think it's a rather elegant car. My family doesn't agree. I would buy the car back, and they say, you can't do that. It's horrible. I, I think, do you think that's like, an elegant car? I think it's very elegant. Good time to get you all to write a note to my family say it's a lovely car, I'll go and buy it. Prito Bruin owned Winter, Winter Garden Garages, which is the principal distributor um, in, uh, in, in the country, and he wanted the company to survive. He had the money. He could see the future of the company. They could see the product quality, um, and see it's really going places. So he, therefore, put in more money to the company to keep it going. Rescue number six. So, honestly, no one on the stock exchange saw this presentation yesterday, I promise you. Because <laughs> if they had, it would be even worse. This is the last pre-war rescue, um, and perhaps the um, most significant insofar as the most durable rescue uh, that took place. Gordon Sutherland, standing next to the car there, was the son of a Newcastle shipbuilder and was, again, a bit like Benson, didn't want to follow a traditional career in the city in his case, and he loved cars and wanted to get involved with cars. Um, he had bought Astons before and he had heard that the company was short of cash. Um, I imagine that everyone walked into Feltham was told, welcome, please buy a car, we need the money. I'm not quite sure how the address went, but it's a bit different to uh, buy the car, it's fantastic, it's buy the car and save the company. Anyway, he, he, was, uh, he was smitten and he went to his father and said, can we, um, can we bankroll the company? And his father said, yes, put Sutherland on the board um, and, and they stayed involved in the company uh, right through to, uh, to the war. So they really kept the thing going. But they didn't just pour money into it, it actually then did become commercially successful for a while. And, and it's interesting that if you look at the history of the company of 103 years, uh, that 105 years, sorry, that the, um, the company has had years when it's been profitable. I don't know exactly how many it is, but I think it's, it's around about 10. Just something like that. No, seriously. Or Peter Levanos, who bought the company uh, in 1981 or 82, whatever it is, um, he's a good friend of mine, and he, he was in for 10 years, and he said, we made profit one year. So basically 10% of the time, they've managed to make a turn of profit with the company. Um, it just goes to show how much fortitude and love they have of the cars, isn't it? If you're going to pour money in and just keep doing it because you love the cars. But he was one of them, um, but they did actually face a time, uh, at least when they were to start to make a bit of profit and uh, not, uh, not be too... Uh, um, in two dire, dire straits. So this is the third series, one and a half litre, the Le Mans, um, which went on to become a very successful model, as we'll see, uh, for the car, and much closer to the basis of the Ulster. Uh, almost ident identical chassis, um, with cable brakes on the rod brakes that the International had, um, and it's also got a Moss gearbox, uh, as opposed to the Aston Martin gearbox, which is a much, much nicer gearbox. Uh, far, far easier. Um, in the car was, was the customer of that car, Kitty Brunel. She was one of the female her heroines of motorsport before the war. And she did the Edinburgh Rally in that car. I forget the result, forgive me. Um, but uh, look up Kitty Brunel on the uh, internet or on books or whatever, and uh, you'll find pictures of her in all sorts of cars or under all sorts of cars, wielding spanners, doing whatever it took to get it done. She was um, quite a gal. So, 1933, as I said, successfully actually made 106 cars that year. Now, that was great. 
then they made some money. So that was a really, really bumper year. And bear in mind, they'd already got through the depression of 1926, the financial crash of 1929, the general strike, all those things that come through that, which obviously bore down on them previously. But things were looking up, and the model, uh, the Le Mans model was, was very, very, a very, very good car. And, uh, and a durable car as well, and a much easier car to live with um, than some of the earlier models, shall we say. Proper Grand Tourer, you might even describe it as. But the next year, we see a new model. And you might say, ah, oh, at last, we've got to the Ulster. Well, not quite, actually. So here we have Le Mans 1934, incredibly hot, by the way. You see, it's so hot, they've actually got covers on the, on the seats to stop the... Uh, sort of see the leather roasting. Um, so we've got four, four cars here, all team cars. LM10, um, loosely based on a, a Le Mans, but much, much lighter. Uh, and then these three cars here, LM14, 11, 11, 12, and 14. Um, interesting, I will mention here that those cars are painted green. It's become important later. They're painted green. Trust me. And uh, so the new models appeared, but they weren't called Ulsters there. And they took part in the Le Mans 24 hours, 1934. They all retired, sadly, uh, with various oil feed problems leading to obviously catastrophic engine problems and so on and so forth. It was not a good Le Mans for Aston Martin. But come, oh, sorry, there's a team, the team there. I was just, I was just get forward to uh, the next event. So just as a team, has anyone, got, anyone study um, pre-war racing drivers? Anyone name a driver up there? What, not one of them? Batelli. Sorry? Batelli, Batelli, absolutely right. You've got Batelli here. Um, that's my point of thing. Sorry? Uh, no, it's Reggie Tong. Good call, good call. Um, so we've got um, um, uh, Sir Tom Fotheringham here. Uh, Jim Elwes with, with Batelli. Uh, but, but, um, Mortimer Goodall, Mortimer Goodall, Mort Goodall, who of course is the father of Jane Goodall, the, uh, the, nat the naturalist who raced Astons for many years before the war and in fact after the war as well. Then Jim Elwes, then uh, Reggie Tong, um, and then, I forget this guy here, that's, no, that's Noel, and that's Morris Faulkner who will come to, oh that's Appleton on the end, sorry, and, um, uh, and that guy on the end I've also now just forgotten as well. Memory like a sieve. Anyway, that was the team for 1934, looking quite happy there. There isn't a picture of them at the end of the race. <laughs> Funny, that. 1934 Tourist Trophy at Newtonards in Ulster. It is significant. Now, they changed the regulations for this race from Le Mans. Um, and they, they said the cars have to be based on a standard car. So the standard car at that time was um, actually the Mark II version of the, of the, of the Le Mans. And the cars they had at Le Mans, LM11, 12, and 14, had massive holes in the chassis, like that size, drilled out, punched. Uh, so they're lightweight, and they, so they thought they would have been not allowed. So what they did was they took LM11 and 12, put new chassis in them, and they called them 11, uh, LM15 and LM16. LM11 and 12 no longer exist. So the 31 Ulsters are already down by two to 29. So 31 have been made in total, down to 29. Um, and then they, so that's 15, which was therefore 12, 14 was not there because they didn't modify it, um, and but it couldn't race, it was illegal, and they had a new one there, LM17. And they also had 16, sorry, 16 was uh, 12, 15 was, was 11. Uh, they also insisted, well it doesn't show it here, uh, but in the race they had to blank off the uh, starting handle thing. They just said, well this car's got to keep running. It's a strange rule, really, isn't it? But that's, that was the rule. So three, three cars entered there, some of the familiar faces there. But the other thing was that um, Bertelli's wife said, that Le Mans, when the cars were green, that was terrible. It must be the colour. You need to change the colour. So the colour was changed from this race forward to a very, very bright red that you may be familiar with seeing Ulster's in. And that was why they changed it to that red. It doesn't show here as being bright red because, of course, the effect of uh, monochromatic film of the, of the period. But nonetheless, three red cars, and they actually had 
thankfully for her, a rather better, better time of the event at the TT. So there's Fothering at the end of the race. Uh, must have strained his hand because he had a bandage putting on there. Fotheringham and Bertelli, uh, third overall in the TT. So they had a hacker, and the other one was just behind it as well, one of the others just behind. So an enormous success for the TT, which is important for them. Therefore, just five weeks later at the Motor Show Olympia, don't you love that sign? I wish they kept that. It's fantastic. Five weeks later at the Motor Show, uh, there is the first Ulster. It's actually the same car. They retrospectively named the car that first appeared at Le Mans 1934 as the Ulster. And uh, with the magic of technology, I can take you a little bit closer to the car there. Um, that is actually, uh, that one still exists. It's being rebuilt now, I hope. It was a bit, uh, bit derelict. Um, but that was uh, 407, so one of the first Ulsters. One of the first ones stamped with, the, with U in the chassis number, at least. And I can now go even closer that's not so clever, that picture, but you can just about maybe make out the word Ulster model there, 750 pounds. Which, by the way, in today's money, I've checked, is 51,000 pounds today. Now, well, that sounds like a cheap Aston, but it's not really as sophisticated as modern cars, is it? And 51,000 pounds at a time when uh, the average salary in 1934 uh, was 250 pounds a year. So put like that, it's a few quid quite an expensive car, so they didn't sell them that quickly. Anyway, so a few features of the Ulster compared to the touring car, the Mark, the Mark II uh, touring car, um, is actually eight inches narrower, so it's a very small cockpit. It's a very, it's actually, the car is, presents a very small uh, face to the, uh, to the front, so it's actually quite a slippery, a slippery car. Um, very cosy cabin, as you can see, very basic as well, um, but has very clever Tail. I don't know why other people didn't copy this design. It's sort of in, what you call the inverted boat tail uh, with, for the spare wheel. It was perfect. The spare wheel, therefore, was lying very low and flat, keeping the, the weight low. But one of the other features of the car, um, and this applies to all of the cars from the International Forwards, which is why they are so effective, is it's an underslung chassis. So the chassis actually runs under the back axle, whereas most pre-war cars, you know, the chassis actually runs over the back axle. We had weight above the car. So combine that, all that weight being so low, and the car only weighs 914 kilograms, and it may have only had 80 brake horsepower in the day, but it actually was incredibly effective. Here's the engine shop. I love that. That's another reason why it's only 750 quid. I mean, this, they, didn't, they didn't splash out in technology in those days. They couldn't. That's all you had. They must have just raided all the, all the old parts bins for fuel tanks and goodness knows what else. But there we are, it's a test bed. It's actually an Ulster engine on the bed there. wish I knew which one it is, but it is an Ulster, an Ulster engine. And that's Jack Addis, who was a long-term mechanic and occasional driver for the, uh, for the company as well. But uh, lovely period shot of uh, the inside of the factory. So early 1935, they're trading on that success from uh, the Tourist Trophy in 1934. Uh, with lovely advertisement, uh, which was in the motor, success after success, and the picture of the two team cars uh, on the way to that success in, um, uh, at, um, at uh, Ulster TT. So, 1935. Um, so, the first picture... Uh, here we go. I skipped over one. Here we go. So, this Ulster, this Ulster here. By the way, I'm not promoting the book. I mean, if you want to buy the book, it's fine, but don't feel obliged. But it's, it's, um, Steve, do you say the special price tonight or something? Or just a good price? Where's Steve gone? He's at the back. Sorry, he's at the back. Anyway, okay. It's, how much was it, Steve? Thirty pounds. There we go. Anyway, um, so um, this is where the car appears, February 35. Uh, for those of you who want to study chassis numbers and Astons, B5549U, B5, U for Ulster, obviously. B for the month, February. Five for the year 35. Um, it says there, it doesn't say actually there, Eddie Hall, but the car was built for Eddie Hall. Um, although, as we see in a second, that ownership story gets a bit muddy and a bit complicated. Um, but the first person they actually sold it to in 36 was Porter Hargreaves, who we'll find out about uh, a little later on. But that's the picture of the original build car for the car. Ulster chassis, two-seater body, green with green interior. And you see X-Works car, sold second-hand in July 1936. 
Joan and Eddie Hall, for whom the car was built. Eddie Hall, of course, is a very famous racing driver of the 30s, and not just the 30s. Uh, with his, his uh, wife Joan, they did a lot of events together. But, of course, Eddie Hall was famous for setting a record, which is that he's the only person to have completed Le Mans single-handed in that Bentley in 1950. Um, he did have a co-driver who must have been some patient guy because he was waiting every pit stop and Hall said, nope, carrying on. <laughs> and he did. Because the same thing happened with Pierre Levey. Um, I think it was a year later, actually, or the year before, I forget now, but anyway, uh, Levey tried to do the same thing, but he missed a gear and just, I think, the 23rd hour, he... Anyone know the Pierre Levey, the Levey story? Was it the 23rd hour that he... Say again? Yes, he was. It was the 23rd hour. 23rd hour. He was so tired. He, <laughs> he, he missed a gear. He was falling asleep. He wouldn't let his teammate drive because there's something wrong with the gearbox. And he broke it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> there we go. Thanks for that. So, um, built for Hall, and he wanted to do uh, the Mille Miglia. Uh, this was the seventh year of the Mille Miglia, uh, and he was intent on taking part in it. So, he trotted off down to Italy with... Um, with Joan, but when he got there, Joan said, I don't actually fancy this, uh, you can do it with someone else. So she was a, became pit manager, and he did it with a chap called Marsden. No one knows who he was, but that was his name. It's the only picture we've ever seen of the car on the Mille Miglia. Sadly, it did 350 miles before something went wrong with lubrication and the car packed up. Eddie Hall was not the sort of guy who took loss well, shall we say? He wasn't very happy about it. Um, and I, I think he expressed severe displeasure with Aston Martin and sort of said he can have the car back. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. So they didn't give him his money back, uh, not at that point anyway. <clears throat> so, you know, good effort. LM17 was also in the event, uh, which did rather better with Clark and Faulkner in the car. And that's quite important, the uh, fact that Clark and Faulkner, who had the X team at LM17, and they were driving in the race. So come Le Mans 35, um, and... Aston Martin take this. Whoops, here we go. Aston Martin take this race rather seriously. As you can see, here's the lineup, and here at the very end is uh, is CMC, and here's LM20, the car that eventually came third overall in the race. Of course, in those days, overall classification was secondary to the handicap result. So, in fact, Aston Martin won the handicap result and won the class. Uh, and which is essentially the same as winning Le Mans. So its achievement then was, was far bigger than it would have been today with the current sort of classification system. Uh, and in fact, a little known factoid, well, maybe, maybe you all know this one, but for the first seven years of Le Mans, the overall winner wasn't even given a trophy. It wasn't that important. It was about handicap, it was about durability, it was about index of performance and so on. Who knew that? No. I didn't know that until about two weeks ago either. <laughs> so there they are, automatically heading off to them all. Now, interestingly, um, those cars there are green and those are red. They look a bit darker. You'll see it better in a second. But it's true. So Clark and Fortner um, owned... They, Morris Fortner owned an M17. He had run it at uh, in Amelia Amelia and some other events. But come Le Mans, they said, well, actually, use CMC. Eddie Hall doesn't want it for Le Mans. It's not done many miles. The car's fresh, so you use it. And, uh, and so it came to pass. So that's why um, CMC was at Le Mans in, 30, in 35, driven by these two people. They are just, um, how should I say, minor aristocrats, met at Cambridge, loved the idea of going racing, bought Aston Martins and went racing. Lucky chaps. Just before the start of Le Mans 1935, again, there's CMC here. Um, and again, that's green, that's green. And the other ones are red, because they're, the they're the team cars. And here's the start. It's a little bit clearer here, because a different film, I imagine, has been taken. Here's the three team cars at the front here. And then the other Ulster's, the last one at the back there, CMC 614. You can see they're darker. So you can start to see there a hint of the fact that they are a little lighter. Never seen a pure colour picture, sadly, but there it is, the start of the race. Um, and there's CMC in the race. It finished eighth overall, fourth in class, um, and it was the first non-team Aston home. It was a tremendous result, and there they are, driving away from the pits with their uh, punting boater and their shooting hat on, looking quite pleased with themselves.
But LM20, car 29 here, went on to, uh, to win the race. And later on, we'll see a picture of the two cars together, which is rather lovely. But an enormous result uh, for the two cars, followed there by LM18. Someone showed me a picture of LM18 earlier, but uh, uh, all these cars, of course, are still active today. So let me get to Target Abruzzo, 1935. Targa Brutza was um, a 21-kilometer road track around Pescara. Uh, even then, it's deemed to be dangerous. And if they called tracks then dangerous, goodness knows what it's really like, because they seem to be quite happy to race in all sorts of conditions, with wearing cloth hats and so on. Um, and they eventually did stop racing there in, um, in 1951. But it's, it's quite, a, quite a tough track, but at least it had some good weather for, uh, for this one. It's a 24-hour race, starts at midnight. And uh, the, again, CMC was there with an M17, and they had quite a tussle for the whole race, but in the end, CMC, driven here by Lurani, um, was, uh, was to come on third. However, it was actually entered by Eddie Hall. So I think this is actually Eddie Hall's probably last straw with Aston Martin. So what happened was that Eddie Hall uh, entered the car at Lurani's suggestion, because he'd seen the car immediately, and I thought, fantastic, I'll drive that car. So Lorani's driving down to Pescara, and he sees Eddie Hall with Joan coming the other way, and they're Bentley. And he said, whoa, what's happened? He said, the hotel's disgusting, we're going home. <laughs> so Lorani's there for this race with an Ulster, just him, and a couple of Italian mechanics, and no co-driver. So Bertelli, as it happens, is on holiday in, in Italy at that time, which is lucky, although you don't put mobile phones in. How he found them, I don't know. But they got hold of Bertelli, he said, can I enter the car on my own? Can I find another driver? Bertelli said, yeah, fine, and I'll send some mechanics. So then they had an English team of mechanics who spoke no English, and Italian-speaking uh, mechanics who spoke no, um, no English, and, and vice versa, sorry. So um, he put a friend of his in, in, in with the car, and they had a great race. Um, and, uh, and they came uh, uh, fourth overall in the, in the Targa Brutza. So another great, great success. And Eddie Hall missed out on that opportunity just because he didn't like the hotel or something. I don't know, maybe Joan didn't like it. I, either way, um, not for me to judge. I mean, it's just how it turned out. Lorani, of course, was a great, great uh, motoring enthusiast. And in fact, he actually much later wrote the definitive book. I think it's the definitive book on Nuvolari. Uh, would that be fair? Um, he did, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was a, a really, really interesting guy. He also specialised in making record-breaking microcars. Well, someone had to. So, um, a great character. And here he is in the car uh, in the 80s in CMC, reunited uh, with the then-owner, uh, Derek Edwards, in the, uh, in the passenger seat. And that actually was the last works outing for, for the car. So, in fact, it had tremendous success in its short, short time and the events it did. Did really big events and did very, very well uh, as well. So, Life After Aston Martin, bought by Porter Hargreaves, um, very keen enthusiast in 1936, who immediately put a centric blower on the car. Uh, there's not many pictures of that blower, uh, but that's, uh, that is one, and that's a, not a very good picture, but at least it gives you some idea of the schematic installation of the supercharger. Um, I think as with many sorts of upgrades on cars of that period, um, it took power away rather than adding to it, which is quite an achievement. <laughs> and made it less reliable and so on and so on and so forth. Very few people have been successful in retrofitting blowers on cars of that sort. It's been done, uh, but it certainly wasn't done then, and maybe centric blowers were not particularly good. I don't know. Um, but anyway, back in, in 1949, the car was then bought by uh, McNabb Meredith, um, a tremendous enthusiast. You can see, it, th this is his look for about the 12 years he owned the car. He just looked like that in the old car the whole time. He just absolutely loved it. Um, and he took part in every St. John Horsfall race meeting and race with the Aston Martin Owners Club uh, that was available to him and many other events besides. There he is there. I think that picture was actually taken in 1950. Soon after he got it, he still got the uh, Le Mans spats on. They had ex extensions on the, uh, the wings there. He took them off later but it's still on the car there, so very, very original uh, in that shot. Um, this is still in his hands, a wonderful picture, um, taken in 1957 at Silverstone, unless someone can date that prefect at some other year. No, it's 1957. Seriously, so someone thinks that prefect is younger. 
I did check that, by the way, earlier. I know nothing of prefix. I thought, crikey, what is the wrong one? Someone's going to say that prefix of 59. It's not, is it? You don't want to admit, don't want to admit, no one wants to admit to being an enthusiast for full prefix of the 50s. I get it. Anyway, there we are. So, um, but that's the original paint, and that's the original colour of the car. However, uh, it, was to, it was to change. Um, lovely picture towards the end of Meredith's time at Silverstone. This is the Aston Martin Owners Club meeting. Um, and this is how I remember it, to be honest. Uh, back in the 60s, huge crowds. But there was no TV or internet worth doing or anything else worth doing, I guess. And go to Silverstone. It's fantastic entertainment. So um, there it is. But then the car moves to Derek Edwards. Anyone heard of Derek Edwards? Yes. yes. Most people in the Aston Martin fraternity have definitely heard of Derek Edwards. If you've met Derek Edwards, you definitely heard of Derek Edwards. Quite a character. This is actually a wonderful picture of Derek. This is, um, this is how I remember him. And he, was, he had a man with a really smile, um, a very coarse joke. I mean, unbelievably coarse jokes, he would tell. He also had a knack for limericks, also extremely coarse. Um, but he was teetotal, never smoked. Uh, and he was, he was a character. He was a hell of a character. So he actually was, um, he had set up his own business um, looking after pre-war Astons just after the war. And a retired naval commander called Leslie Maher came along and uh, he started looking after his car and Maher became a Grand Prix driver, looked after him in his Connell in Grand Prix racing. Um, and when he ran out of money, Maher put the money in. There's a pattern here, isn't it? You've got an Aston, basically it's a money pit. Does that ring true to everybody here? I mean, who... You've been lucky to make money out of Aston Martin, running it anyway. You might sell it eventually and cash in, but running it, it, uh, it can really, really hurt. And running the business, very painful. But so Derek was a, was a great character, and uh, he also was a BMC agent. That's how my father met him in 1961, I think it was. He bought a Mini from him. Um, he had a little garage in Opperdon's Mews in Primrose Hill, London. Um, and he was faintly, he, he, had, he had an eye for a pretty car, he also had an eye for pretty girls, in a good way. Let me get this straight, in a really good way. He's just a charming, charming guy. But half his mechanics were girls. And back in that time, that was pretty unusual. In fact, one of them married Leslie Marr, uh, and another one would, uh, was starting the business in, in about that time, early 60s, and she, Judy Hogg, stayed with it until she retired uh, not that many years ago. Um, so. The era of Edwards, you can see, 62 to 96, was huge. The car had been actively campaigned since the war, but with Edwards, he cemented as being probably the most raced Aston Martin ever. It never stopped to cool down. Every weekend was doing something, and twice a weekend, and as many events as he could do, he just wore the thing out. Except he didn't. He just maintained it wonderfully. He just kept it going. It's terrific. Um, Anybody recognise the two other people standing next to the car? Bill Body, yeah, and the other one's easier, Dennis Jenkinson. In the uh, Dennis Jenkinson. So Edwards campaigned it very actively, and in 1962 he rebuilt the car, finally took the, uh, the centric blower off it, and he painted it this blue here, which he called Oppidan's Blue after the street that his garage was in. Uh, it was his personal mix, a unique colour with some magic dust in it or whatever, and it became very famous for being that colour. And it was only very recently that it changed from that, that blue to the, uh, going back to the 1930, uh, 1935 uh, green. And many people actually sort of said, well, it's a shame it's not blue anymore. But well, originality is a hard, hard thing to argue against, isn't it? So here's Derek at Wiscombe Park Hill Climb in Devon in 1971, typically pressing on and having a great time. Phil in 67. I've got millions of pictures of this car being driven by Derek. I had to put that one in because that's how I remember it as well. I actually, for some I can't remember why, but in the 80s I borrowed that trailer. It was a nightmare. Who would have a trailer with two wheels on it? <laughs> but I guess an Armstrong Sedley would actually keep it stable. But most cars, the trailer must have just been doing that as it's going along. Um, but I remember once, and this is where I have a very personal association with Derek, but I remember um, back in about 63, being at a sprint meeting, it's pouring in rain, and Derek saw me watching the cars going past and watching the event. He said, he, he, with, some, with some, actually, I think he softened the language a bit because I was very young at the time, and he said, come sit in the back of the car. So I went in the back of the car. I ended up falling asleep in the back of that with him. And um, 
anyway, he was a, he was a long-term family friend and a wonderful guy and actually eventually got me into motor racing as well. You can see why this book was an easy one for me to do. He also took, the, took part in Concours events with it, Fort Belvedere, uh, which is um, near Virginia Water. Um, for those of you who don't know, Fort Belvedere, a lovely country seat of part of the royal family, and is actually where Edward VIII broadcast his abdication from in 1936. But here's Derek looking proudly by the car 63, fresh after his repaint in the Opulence Blue. Um, and here's Judy Hogg uh, in delightful period health, health and safety headgear. Uh, at the Magisfield Sprint in 65. And actually, of course, regulations demanded that Ulsters have hoods. Very rarely seen, very more rarely seen up. So I had to, not a great picture, but I had to offer it anyway because it's such a funny sight seeing it. Um, zip, going across it, of course, is nobody getting in the car. You can't get in the car with the hood up. So later on, to more recent times, um, Derek sadly um, suffered a stroke uh, in I think 1990 uh, and then had to ease off and he finally passed away in 2000. Um, and then the chance came up for Fred Blakemore, who had already had um, a number of pre-war assets looked after by Derek. He had the opportunity to buy it and he thought, I've got to have this car. But he also said, I'm not buying it. I'm putting money into the car to be a custodian. So his view was, this is actually just looking after it for the next person. And he had it for a number of years, and here he is at uh, Mille Amelia uh, in 2000, the first time the car had been back to Mille Amelia since 1935, with Andy Bell from Acuri Bertelli there. And unlike 1935, they completed the course. Um, then it passed to Kelvin McKenzie, who had it for about six years. Uh, and then, now this picture's a great one. I say, because it's an even more personal picture. So it's Goodwood Revival with Mark Midgley, last owner but one in the car. As LM20, the car came third at Le Mans in 1935, uh, and I'm driving it in that picture there, a good revival. And we had the most incredible tussle for the entire race. It was brutal. I beat him. <laughs> he won't let me forget it either. Um, it actually, interestingly, the Ulster still has, still has and had then the Le Mans high back axle in it. And we qualified next to each other on the grid, on the grid but I knew that the start would be absolutely impossible because the axle was so high. And sure enough, I lost about six cars before the first corner. So I had to get back, get back up to him, but uh, we did it. Um, and then more recently, uh, still Adam Linderman, uh, a New York art dealer, I bought the car, but kept in this country, and did many events, and this is the Le Mans Classic in 2016. Um, and he had the car put back to the condition it was in exactly as in 1935, so the green and so on, which I'll, I'll just mention a little bit in, in a second. And it was Adam Linderman who commissioned the book, although then he has decided to sell the car, um, but it still carried on with the, uh, with the book. So the full restoration took place uh, about eight years ago, um, back to 1935. So this is the first time the car had been properly taken apart at a Curibatelli in Olney. Um, here it is being dismantled. Um, and they found on the hinge some original 1935 green. And they matched it. And that's the colour on the car today. So they're absolutely certain that they've got the correct green on the car, which is lovely. Just as they found when they rebuilt LM18, they found some original red to get that colour right too. The switch plate here on the dash, uh, they never restored it. It just had a little few chips and scratches on it. They just kept it as it was. So never, never been uh, put back. And sorry, and, it's, and with the, ah, God, sorry. The chassis plate there on the side of the scuttle, it's an enigmatic story, and it's like the unsatisfactory one, but but Teddy said, oh, when we took that plate off, there's a piece of paper underneath it, or a note. I said, that's amazing. And they said, it must have been this in 1935. I said, yeah, 1935. What did it say? Can't remember. Put it back. <laughs> For a historian, that was just, that was like, what an idiot. Why would you do that? But it was, there, it goes, there it goes. So, you know what? Maybe it's one of those things. It's, 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 it's um, it, the myth will continue. It's, it's still there. Now you know it's there, at least. 
Um, so that's how the car looks today. It's resplendent in the original green. Um, and at Monterey last year, I was actually there for the sale at uh, some of his sale uh, when it was sold. Ironically, the car was shipped to the United States to be sold there, and it was bought by someone in Cheshire. Um, who then, who's comfortable about it, paid good money for the car, and even though it was not imported into America, it had gone there and been sold there, which means he had to pay duty bring it back into the UK. Ouch, on the purchase price. Yep, nasty. And here we go. A few months back, uh, current owner Keith Ashworth at Le Mans Classic, back to Le Mans, and so the car keeps going. And I'm sure it will keep going. It will obviously, and this is a sobering truth, but these cars will all outlast us. Uh, future custodians will keep enjoying them, as we have as well. And that is the end. I didn't even watch the time. Was that, was that two hours? Was that, was that what I but About two hours, wasn't it? Yeah, OK. I, I did warn you. Um, there we go. So uh, we're well, going a little bit over time, um, but I hope you've enjoyed that. And I'd be delighted to take uh, any questions or uh, no challenges. Heckle, no, no heckles. Thanks for that. I would have taken that. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Archer. <laughs> Um, Thank you. Those amongst you who are observant, you recognise that we've got some of Stephen's books for sale this evening. They will be signed. Um, they're currently on sale at Amazon for £30, when you have to wait three days to get them. They're £30 tonight. You can take them away and they will be signed. So, if any interest... I will sign them, but don't, don't feel obliged. I'm not actually on any commission. I just got a fee for writing it and that's it. So, so don't feel any pressure to buy the book, seriously. But if you want to... Obviously, I'd be delighted to, uh, to sign it. <coughs> We'd love them to be signed. Oh, you like... Yeah, yeah, there we go. There we go. <laughs> right, ladies and gentlemen. Um, first question. Anyone from the floor that's got a question for Stephen? I'm sure... All right, OK. I'll be over to you in a minute, sir. Stephen, as we're at, at Brooklyn's, you know, does the car have any Brooklyn's history? Actually, no, none whatsoever. No. It's um, an easy one. I, <laughs> Yes, short, short answer. Um, uh, in fact, Ulster's uh, very rarely appeared here. Uh, and in fact, team cars never raced here. Uh, just a few privateers raced here uh, in, and I think even then, only in 36 and 37, maybe 38. Uh, in fact, that car I mentioned that was missing, uh, that raced here for certain. But uh, no, no team Ulster's. Another one over Sorry here. Sorry about that. One over here, Stephen. That over direction. There. Go ahead, sir. Go ahead. As someone who lived very close to the village of Aston Clinton, yes. you didn't mention how it got the name Aston Martin. I always understood it was in the 20s, but you were talking about Aston Martin being the name earlier than that. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's an oversight. I didn't mention that. Um, so, and a lot of people actually think that the connection is with that is Lionel Martin and Aston Clinton, which is not strictly true. Uh, it's with Aston Hill, which is just outside, you know. It's just outside. And it was a hill climb course that um, Martin had a lot of success on, and it's still there. And in fact, if I ever drive up it, I live actually about three miles from it. So sometimes I. You're in Western Turville? Yes. Okay, well, I'm, I'm up in near Missenden. So sometimes I deviate, de detour up it. I did last week actually, and something quite quick and went up at a ridiculous speed. Just because it's quite fun. Uh, yeah, so, so um, and it, was, it was Kate Martin's idea to. Um, make the connection between Aston, where they had success, and, and the car, because it was, you know, it was profit from the association of, of the success at, the, at, the, at that hill. So, it's, uh, so, so thank you for reminding me of, uh, of that. But it went back to before they made, uh, made the cars. Uh, in fact, they, he'd, been, he'd been on the hill even before Aston Martin was, uh, was formed. So they had a long association with the hill. In fact, Bertelli had competed on it too uh, many, many years. Uh, Years before, so long association, um, and I think it's stuck in their in their heads. And Kate said, "Aston Martin sounds good." So uh, they go. In fact, there's a can at the top of the hill to celebrate that fact that was put there. Okay, uh, another back. question, ladies and gentlemen. Anyone else? Yes, right. yes, sir. In the front here. Uh, when the companies kept on going bankrupt, did they continue to retain the engineers from company to company? 
Yes, um, the the staff generally stayed. As, as I mentioned, the, the, the problem was more at the board level than at the shop floor level. Um, so ownership changed and leadership changed, if you like, in the company. But the uh, you know the staff stayed on. Jack Addis had been through the, been in the company from almost the start. I think about 1919 he joined the company and he stayed on until about 28, I think it was. He emigrated to New Zealand. So they kept. They had a good continuity and. And a very loyal, loyal workforce, and that actually has also been another characteristic of the company over the years. Even when Aston went horribly wrong in 1974, you know, most of the people who could go back did go back to the company. So it's it's really it's a really interesting thing. Is people that just, no matter what it does to them, how disappointed they may be or how broke they are, they 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 they, they, uh, they stick with it. Another question here. The, the uh, bonnet bulge that accommodated the blower, was yes. that actually an original? Because it doesn't look so on other osters. Yeah, the, no, the bulge was put on by Porter Hargreaves in 1936 uh, to make room for it. So that's the first time it appeared. Now, you'll, you'll notice, therefore, maybe that's why you asked the question, sharp-eyed, um, it's still there now. And Adam Linderman took the decision that it's been on since 36. That's one thing we won't put back to 1935. Everything else was put back to 35. And I think that was actually a really, really good decision because it is the, it is the, uh, uh, the only unique feature of this that makes it stand out so obviously compared to any other Ulsters. The other thing I should point out for those um, who may be wondering is that this is what's known as a high radiator Ulster. The later team cars and later production cars uh, had a radiator about three inches um, lower than that, in fact, um, 20. Um, in fact, it might be obvious I'd go back to that shot there. The race there. Yeah, it should be obvious here. You see the height, the height difference in the radiator there. Um, and it's just because they didn't need a radiator that big, and it's just, uh, again, reducing frontal area. So they were pretty pretty advanced in their, in their thinking. And it is a very slippery car, and to drive it, to drive the car and race it. And you see, if you slipstream behind a Bentley, it's fantastic. You've got to be careful in driving the back of it, because you'll just get sucked right up to it. and. Uh, and uh, you have all sorts of trouble. But don't, don't be in front of it either, because the Bentley will actually, as it ha has happened to me, the Bentley will actually then drive into you, because you can stop quite well. Although, although I must say, there's one interesting characteristic of these pre-war Astons, and anyone's got a pre-war Aston like you have, if you've hit the, hit the brakes hard, or you're driving really, really hard, you've got four cables, all connected to the pedal, and the handbrake, the same thing. You've got four cables going over four wheels. But of course, they're not all quite the same length. <laughs> so if you're really, really, really going for heroic braking into a corner, it's all over the place, and you just, you just get used to it. You just wrestle with it. And if it's wet, you just make sure you have enough coffee that day. <laughs> but they are fantastic cars to drive. They are so, and they're modern guys like this, so quick. And cross-country, you know, just amazing, amazing cars. Another question. Yes, sir. Oh, no. this, got, this, chap, this chap's got an Aston. I'm in trouble now. No, no, you're not. You're not. <laughs> uh, uh, Stephen, just to say, when my father got, got, it's very original. All the seats are original. Yeah. The rubber, I've got, uh, the, the seats have um, a, a bladder in them. Okay. Blow-up bladder. Blow-up bladder, oh, yes. So did those original cars, did they all have blow-up bladders? No. No, they were... I forget the name of that pre-war rubber that decomposes, um, but it was that. It was like, it was like a whoopee cushion. Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> it, was, it didn't, didn't have a whoopee cushion in it. It was... Um, <laughs> no, it was that old-fashioned uh, foam rubber. Yeah. Which, which, uh, which all perished. It was all perished. Oh, yeah. And, uh, Your pile of dust. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another question right here? at the front, front there. Keeping me fit. Thank you. Well done. Quicker than me. Stephen, do you know anything about a firm, uh, E. Wrigley, that supply, in the 1920s supplied transmission bits and pieces um, to Aston Martin? No. Don't know anything about it. Okay. <laughs> right. No, I know. Where, where, where are they? I know they're Birmingham-based. No. I know a little bit about that, and um, the uh, Aston Martin Heritage Trust confirms that oh, they, yeah. they indeed they did. So yeah, yeah. perhaps I can uh, contact you afterwards and yeah, no, please add do. to your please to do. joint add, knowledge. Add, add, to the, add to the font. Please do. Okay. Yeah, I do like answers like that. No. <laughs>
No bullshit. Well, I could give the politicians answer. I'm really glad you asked me that question because I've been thinking about <laughs> thinking about suppliers in Birmingham for a long time, but no. But never that one. But not that one, no. <laughs> uh, any more, ladies and gentlemen? Right, okay. We'll take this one and then one more. There we go, sir. I, I apologise. Good Lord, I, you're I, here. Apologise in advance. Um, <laughs> For some you should reason, introduce my... yourself. Please introduce yourself. Uh, well, well uh, Christopher Angel, who was member 334 of the Aston Owners Club, he bought the... I don't think he bought it new, but he bought the 1934 Ulster, sold it before the war, bought it back in again in the 50s, and this, this was 34 years after he first went to um, Castle Donington with it. And... Um, uh, in case there's any risk of my family being called eccentric, my mother incidentally uh, pulled up in the paddock here before the war in a borrowed Bugatti, took off her borrowed, no, her new leather flying helmet, uh, and heard a loud voice say, Good God, it's a bloody woman! <laughs> anyway, in 1963, some of you are probably old enough to remember, it was a terrible winter. And Christopher Angel's mother died, and the funeral was in Ashwell in Hertfordshire. And Christopher lived in Sutton in Surrey at that time. And so his choice of transport in this wickedly cold and deep snow was his 1934 Ulster. He had taken the boat tail off and put a tea chest to carry the, the, the uh, uh, wreath. And um, uh, my mother and I, we went in her four by four to get to Ashwell by a long way and drove up the fields and things. When we got to Ashwell Station, uh, some workmen were clearing the road and they said, you should get through in this. But a few minutes ago, a lunatic drove up in an old car and we said, you can't get through, the road is blocked. And he waved us to one side and was gone, drove up on the snow and was gone. This was Christopher in his Ulster. He went to the, his mother's funeral, had a cup of tea, and then in the terrible weather drove back to Sutton. So, uh, not saying they're bred and tough, but... Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, um, you've just been addressed by Ashley Mack, who is the owner of that Ulster there, that I just mentioned, the, the, the motor show car. Yes, and I'm, I'm very ashamed that it is still a wreck, as I inherited it, <laughs> but... but, but no, um, never mind. I, kn I know your intentions, Ashley, and I know it's going to be... The, the, you, the, you're the looking road, after it. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Delighted to see you. Thank you very much. What a way. OK, one more question, although I think probably to finish on that one, I don't think we can beat that. Stephen, thank you very much indeed, sir, for being here. Now, uh, by the way, if you do come oh, yeah. up and sign a book, you can also look at a genuine one and a half litre racing Dural Conrad, Conrod with the original white metal bearing in it. This rod actually I polished in 1982 and it came out of one of the Le Mans, 1931 Le Mans Aston Martins, which I was racing at that time. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's how they were and they could last. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, sure. Okay. Right, just while we set the raffle up, we're ready to go. Okay, which makes a change. Uh, all green tickets.